Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, 80s Rewinders. This is the 80s Rewind Show podcast, and I'm Rob the Face for Radio Burgess. I've got a fantastic episode today. I spoke to David Mayer, a man who took on the Bee Gees and won. Cue the music. I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello, everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone, this is Charlene. Hi, this is Dennis Seaton from Music E. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host. The face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. It was Barbara calling me up at 81, 82, and she just called up and said, will you make an album with me? And so after I got up off of the ground, I... I, uh, told my wife and I told everybody in my family that I just had this call from Barbara Streisand. We cut all the tracks in Miami at Criteria, which is now the hit factory. The interesting thing about Barbara was that if she sang something, she considered it to be sung. She didn't think she had to sing it again. And that's old school, you know, it's like that's how she grew up. And I would say, you know, especially on Guilty, first song she sang, I said, can you give us about four or five tracks? She says, well, I just sang it. Uh, no, no. Can you give us choices? Can you give us four or five tracks so that we can pick and choose which are the best moments? But I just sang it. The fantastic Barry Gibb there talking about working with Barbara Streisand. Now, before we get on to that, I've got to say a massive thank you to everybody that's liked, subscribed and shared the show all over the place. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And if you can spread the word, that would be amazing. And also thank you to everybody that's looked at the YouTube channel. So if you want to check out the video, link's in the description and you can watch this on YouTube as well. If you're a YouTuber, not a podcaster, that's fine. As long as you enjoy the show, that's all that matters. Before I start the show, I've got to say a massive shout out to all my brothers and sisters that do podcasts as well. I've got to say hello to Robbie Ann from the Glitter Bomb Girls, Robbie, who does Living in the 80s, Dante, who does Business Breaks, and also Pete Saxer from Unknown Sounds. I'll put some links in the descriptions for all those shows. They're all fantastic, so give me your love and support. Now, today's show, what have I got for you? I've got David Mayer, who wrote an autobiography on the Bee Gees. I was really interested in the Bee Gees during the 80s because obviously there was the Disco Sucks movement and then they went into semi-retirement and started producing before they came back in 87 with You Win Again and then basically took over the world. I managed to see them in 1998, I think it was, and they were absolutely amazing. It was hit after hit for two hours. It was a fantastic global jukebox, and they just knocked song out after song out after song out. One of the best gigs I've ever been to. And you got to see the brothers singing in harmony as well. I've got to say I witnessed that because they were just fantastic. Through his research, David discovered some facts about the Bee Gees that I didn't even know, and we discussed those in this episode. His books for sale on Amazon, and there'll be a link in the description just below if you want to buy it and read it. I'm definitely going to do that because there's loads of stuff that I'm really interested in finding out about. I really hope you enjoy it. Anyway, let's get to it. If we can start a little bit way back, um, how did you get into writing the book about the Bee Gees? Are you, are you a Bee Gees fan, or were they just someone you was interested in? 
Well, I, to tell you the truth, my reasons were entirely commercial. And, you know, I wrote a biography of Graham Parsons, and that was a very long, difficult project. So I wanted to find the biggest band that had never been biographized, and that was the Bee Gees. And so I started off not that interested in them, but writing the book, I they're just, they're fascinating. We've got an amazing career from the Bee Gees. It's 60 years long. Um, and then obviously to, to, to the mid to late 60s, they do really well for themselves. And then they sort of hit the the bit where they had a bit of a slump and then there's not a lot going on for them. And they're sort of doing the chicken in the basket clubs up north. Is that right? right. They, were, they were doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, they had a terrible falling out. That was kind of the undercurrent history of the Bee Gees is how are the brothers getting along? And so they had a terrible falling out, stopped working together, and then they just lost their audience. And they kind of came from a sort of nightclub perspective. They were never rock and rollers. So it was a logical step to them to go to those kind of clubs. And it was it was just one of those things where it's strange when you think about their career now that they would go down that road. I mean, they had to make money at the end of the day and they were, you know, they were working musicians. But to see them, imagine seeing them a chicken, a basket kind of stuff for us up north is just a crazy idea. And then they sort of evolve a little bit more. They've still got a record career, which was amazing when I was looking at it because I thought most bands would have been dropped at this point. They pretty much wouldn't have had anything signed, would they? They would have been on their own pretty right. much. And then they uh, they slowly sort of get back into it. They have Life in a Tin Can and Mr. Natural, which is, I think, is one of their better early albums. Yeah. And then they sort of get on to um, the the earlier stuff, sort of main course, which is where I really think the disco era starts for me. That's when they were really finding their groove. It's just weird how they, they sort of had this jump from soul to disco. Just, how did that come about? Well, you know, they had this producer, Eric Martin, who was a great soul producer. And if you play, I mean, I just think Jive Talking is one of the best singles ever recorded. And it's not exactly a disco song. It's like a bridge song between funk and, and disco. And Barry always had a really strong rhythmic drive and wanted to make more danceable tunes. And he got together with Eric Martin and they began to make this stuff in, in Miami at Criterion Studios where there are a lot of Caribbean musicians and dance-oriented musicians. And that's how it came about. I mean, I always say Jive Talking is about as raceless a single as you could possibly find. You know, you listen to Cool and the Gang, you go, yep, that's a black band. You listen to Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yes, that's a white band. You'll say AWB, as great as they are. Yes, that's a white band. But you, if you didn't know Jive Targon, you'd be hard-pressed to say, are these black or white musicians? And it just hits that dance song groove where you can't identify anything except what a great dance song it is. It's fantastic, isn't it? And it's completely left-field. It comes out of nowhere, and it's sort of... Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And then obviously obviously after that, they get the um, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and they release a few more albums. You've got Children of the World and Spirits Have Flown. So all disco influenced, is, is that right to say? Right, yes. Yeah, and they've got some massive hits like Tragedy on it and stuff like that. And then the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack sells more than most soundtracks have ever done. They win a ton of awards. They're doing really well. Biggest record ever at the time. Everything on it stayed on the charts for, you know, the record was on the chart for like 200-some weeks. All right, I'll tell you something great about um, Staying Alive. Staying Alive was the first drum loop ever. Was it really? Yeah, because their drummer's mother, they were recording in uh, Haraville, France, that uh, Elton John immortalized as the Honky Chateau, a castle in rural France where there's a recording studio, and he cut Honky Chateau there, and Bowie recorded there, Led Zeppelin, everybody recorded there. And the drummer went back to England to be with his sick mom. 
Right. And they had to record the track. So the two producers pulled a drum track off another song and literally made a 30-foot tape loop that they ran all around the studio over microphone stands, over empty uh, tape reels, and ran it back through the record heads and just ran that loop over and over and over. And that's a drum sound on Staying Alive. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And it's just literally the perfect 4-4 beat, isn't it? It just keeps you driving, yes. keeps you moving. And, you, <laughs> and I love that they were saying that you need to use it for first aid nowadays, but it actually isn't right. <laughs> it's just a great song. You think use it for first aid? You mean if you're giving like CPR? Yeah. Yeah. In England, there's a big campaign saying it's you pump to the Stayed Alive River, but apparently they worked out it's the wrong one. <laughs> But, That's great. <laughs> but if you're doing first aid, do it anyway. Use that. Right. right. <laughs> That's so yeah. the Bee Gees are doing great. They're selling millions. They're winning awards. They're absolutely everywhere. Disco's huge. And then you get the Disco Sucks movement, which was a, a game. Was it, Is it called Mensky Park? Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Yeah. And Steve Dole, the DJ, gets sacked because he, was it right? He, he had to play a lot of... Bee Gees and he didn't like it because he was a rock DJ. Is this right? Yeah, that's right. And then he did a big Disco Sucks movement where they blew loads of vinyls up at the game. Was it right you could bring a vinyl uh, to get him for free? Was that right? Yeah, that was the deal. You bring a Bee Gees record and they blew him up in the middle of the field. That's crazy. It didn't really work out the way they expected. It took forever to clean up, et cetera, et cetera. Was it un- uh, underpinned with sort of basically racial and homophobia and black hatred as well? Was it? Did that it was a- always my take. I mean, remember, too, though, that punk was very, very anti-disco. And so you had you had sort of like a legitimate aesthetic reaction to disco with the punk movement who just hated that mechanistic aspect of it and the slick corporatist aspect of it. And then you had a very strong homophobic and anti-black movement that just didn't like dance music and didn't like what dance music suggested. There was two sort of things, if I read this right, that sort of changed everything. It was the disco sucks movement, blowing up the records and then my Sharona by the Nat came in and sort of just swept everything away overnight. Yeah. My Sharona is a really interesting historical pivot because it's the exemplar of the commercialization of punk, you know, and the Nat were regarded with great contempt in the LA punk scene, but they were sort of a punk band who made this great pop song and suggested a route out of disco via power pop and what became new wave. And there was all those great danceable bands that that emerged from New Wave. And that began to supplant disco too, because the younger audiences, like the punk audiences that evolved into New Wave, they just weren't listening to disco. They didn't care about it. They hated it. It was was just like a a whitewash. It just came through and just smashed everything out of the way. It's incredible. So, I mean, I was looking at the the stats for the Bee Gees pre-70s and early 80s. And you've got like Spirits having flown the album come out in 79 and reached number one in England in particular. And then you go to the the album Living Eyes, which is 81, and it only got to 73. Right. Yeah. So straight away, within a couple of years, you could tell that it like the Bee Gees records were struggling to, to make bank in England in particular as well. Well, people were just saturated too because they'd only heard the Bee Gees for years and years and years, and they were just sick of them. Oh, so it was more of a sort of tasting. There was just, it was like Phil Collins in the 80s, where he was just everywhere and everyone. <laughs> yes, that the, the tide really turned. I mean, it's not as good a record, of course, but their records were always like a few great dance hits and then a lot of filler. So there, there's a lot of filler on that record. In your opinion, do you think the Bee Gees thought their career was over again in 1980 and they'd have to go back to the sort of like club circuit like they were doing back in the early 70s again? Well... You know, there's two things that 
as immersed you are in music, I know you know to be true. One is after a certain period of time, everybody in the band hates everybody else in a band. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, nobody can stand to work with their family. So you got those two truths like intersecting at the Bee Gees to the power of 10 because they couldn't stand each other, but they knew they couldn't do their best work without each other. And after Saturday Night Fever and the things that followed, they were just burned. They were so tired and they were tired of each other and they were wrestling, not Barry so much, but the twins were wrestling with drugs and alcohol and they were deeply worn out. And at the same time, Barry just took complete control. I mean, he wouldn't let Robin sing songs that Robin wrote. Wow. And so they had to put up with Barry as the total band dictator. And, you know, Barry is just an insane genius. You, you study the Bee Gees. He, he wrote 21 purpose-built hits for other artists. Number ones. 21 number ones for other people. Who could do that? That's crazy, yeah. You know, the greatest songwriters, you know, couldn't do that, but he could. And the twins were not on that level and they knew it. And he just had them do whatever they wanted. It drove everybody crazy. So he was always the superior songwriter, was he, Barry? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say it's a, the strongest example is that he wrote To Love Somebody when he was 21 and he wrote it for Otis Redding. And Otis died before he could record it. It would have been the greatest song Otis ever recorded. And now everybody's recorded it. But, I mean, he wrote that at 21. And... You know, he, he he would like, you know, listen to Barbara Streisand, wrote two number ones for her, listen to Kenny Rogers, wrote two number one for him. You know, all these wide ranges artists, he, I think he's really underrated as a songwriter. There's a, a story that his producer told me that Barry had written a song that had 21 harmony parts. And he just went into the booth and sang every one of them perfectly, take one. That's crazy. It is crazy. So he said he had perfect pitch beyond perfect pitch and just perfect control. That is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the disco days make you think of them as somewhat cartoonish, and they were a little cartoonish, but Barry was a true genius. He was a true musical genius. You know, they couldn't read or write music, any of them. Yeah. And Barry would hum the string parts he wanted and hum the horn parts he wanted. It's, I mean, it's just interesting that when you listen to, uh, like, Spirits Haven't Flown and then you listen to Living Eyes, Living Eyes is a different album completely. You can completely. hear Yeah. You can hear they've gone no more disco, but it's it's also but it's a very strange album because it's very sort of serious, but it's also very sort of dare I say half assed like they they wasn't bothered about it. Yes, they were they were burned, and you know, and they went in and staggered through it, and Barry was telling them what to do, and most of the time the twins, you know, uh, Morris and Robin wouldn't be around. Barry was running it, but I think you really hear of a band coming off this gigantic wave. And having the mentality of, oh, we've got to go in the studio again. Then they get onto the production work, which is, is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, did it start with Barbara Streisland? Is that where it started? Right, but remember, that's just Barry. You know, the, the Robin and Morris have nothing to do with that sort of thing. And Barry worked a lot with a producer named Albie Galut, who produced uh, Saturday Night Fever records and other records for them. And he just learned a lot about production. And if Barry walked into a place, he was going to be in charge. People forget this, but the Bee Gees, for most of their career, really were a band. You know, they had the same drummer, uh, keyboardist, guitar player th throughout. And so they weren't, he, they weren't just a bunch of studio hacks. They really had a band. And Barry was a, a negligible musician, really. He was a good acoustic guitar player. But the parts he wanted, he would indicate to musicians he trusted 
Yeah. Morris was the really, when he was sober, was the really great musician. He was like Brian Jones. You know, if he could touch it, he could play it. And so he played bass, played Mellotron, played organ. But then his drinking got so bad that he couldn't really play. And then when he sobered up, he recovered his skills. It's interesting that I looked, um, I was looking at the solo careers of the Bee Gees during the 80s. And uh, Barry had a few albums out, so did Robin. And Morris had no solo album in the 80s. Was it mainly because of the recovery that he didn't actually write any albums or make any songs? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Morris was not a particularly driven songwriter. He wrote a few good country songs. You can find the videos on YouTube. There's a railroad song that's a good country song. But he wasn't especially motivated to be a songwriter. Robin was more motivated than he was, but not that motivated. And Robin made a great solo record called Sing Out Sister. It's very hard to find, but the tracks are on YouTube. I mean, maybe you have a copy of it, given looking at the size of your record collection. <laughs> maybe. But... But it's, uh, it's such a good record. But then he faded out uh, writing songs too. Robin was a pillhead. That was his issue. And he bought this medieval village. And his wife was very interested in uh, shamanist sort of things. And he got involved with that and kind of stopped songwriting. But I mean, also just remember the avalanches of money that were pouring into them. So it's, to me, it's, it's actually really interesting that Barry's ambition never ever dwindled no matter how much success or how much money he had he just kept going and going and going and the twins were more like look i'm gonna put my feet up like morris got obsessed with paintball <laughs> he did yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> of all the sports he <laughs> <laughs> built himself a big paintball place in miami and had paintball teams and barry wasn't really one for for narcotics and drink really was he, he was was he just more sort of like a workaholic than the other two. Is that why the other two struggled? Yeah, Barry, li- Barry liked weed, but he was never he was never a cokehead. He was never an alcoholic. You know, coke killed Andy. And no, Barry, Barry was like a family man and a dedicated worker. And would it be the death of Andy that brought them down to earth a bit more, as in like sorting out their problems as a family? No, the, you know, the, the Gibbs weren't much for sorting out problems. The Gibbs were much more about like, go ahead, keep going, move forward. And with Andy, they seemed to be more like, well, he'll figure it out. I've done all I can for him. I mean, I I say in the book, the problem was that Andy just really loved Coke. And he had the money to do it. And he had the fame that people would always bring it to him. And he he, he loved it, but he could not handle it. And his, his heart attack was Coke related. He had a in, inflamed heart and he did a great deal of coke. All that talent as well. I mean, he was literally all three of them put together, wasn't he? He was, the, he was the looks, he could write songs, he could play. He was amazing. If I remember right, he's, I think he's the 
at the time was the only person that his first three singles went to number one. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but he had he had issues because Barry wrote his three songs and Barry taught him to sing them line by line, and Andy always had self worth issues. So when he would get up and sing these songs that he didn't regard as his own, you know, Andy was very happy playing covers in bars in Ibiza. And he did that for, for years. And that, he always said that's when he was happiest. Because he got offered so many worthy showbiz gigs that anybody else would kill for. And he blew them all up. He did, yeah. And he was going to join the, the brothers at one point as well, wasn't he? Is that right? That we would come before some? Well, he wanted to. He really wanted to. But the brothers were reluctant. And that was another issue for Andy. Because the brothers' attitude was more like, we've been busting our asses for 30 years. And he wanted to just jump in and sing with us. So they were they were quite reluctant about that. And Andy and Barry were very, very deeply bonded. And Morris and Robin resented that bond. So it never seemed clear to me that they were going to let him join. Oh, was it more of a sort of carrot dangle type thing? You know, like, yeah, one yeah. day, one day, yeah. <laughs> well, it's what he wanted. He wanted it badly and Barry wanted it. But Robin and Morris were resistant. Wow. I, it's, it's interesting you say that. When you watch documentaries and things about it, it never comes across like that. It always seems like it was Andy's decision not to do it. And also, there, you know, there were other jealousies because, I mean, uh, Andy was handsome as a movie star. Morris and Robin were funny looking. <laughs> were. And, and Andy was also, and Barry was this incredibly charismatic guy. So the two of them bonded. And the two twins, who are always kind of the betas in the family, were looking at these two alphas and going, no. <laughs> no, I don't want to sing next to Andy. I don't want to sing next to Andy. Yeah, they're going to railroaded. <laughs> I, I see. I see your point. I suppose it would have been Barry and um, Andy up front, and they would have become the backing band as well, probably. Exactly. The two ugly guys would be standing off to the side, and there would be the two movie stars in front. Andy, what a talent! Rest in peace, mate. Then you get a little further on to eighty-seven. You get ESP comes out, and then you win again, obviously, on that album, and that that song literally in England in particular, just took over, didn't it? It just, it smashed the world again and everyone loved the Bee Gees all of a sudden again. Right. Did that come as a surprise to them again or was that an album they were focused on, do you think? They were focused on it and Morris was sober. And so Morris was back as a real force in the studio playing and it seemed to revitalise Barry and their sort of hiatus away from each other, their burnout ended and they wanted, they wanted a hit again. And Barry, if I remember right, Barry wrote all the songs, I think he did. And he really drove them and drove the production production team. He wanted another hit. You know, the Bee Gees, their view was always hits. They try, you know, Odessa was like their concept album. And it was a terrible flop, even though there's really good music on it. And so their orientation was always, where are the hits? How do we make a hit? They they were never album guys. You know, they were song guys. Well, I should say post-Odessa. They were song guys. ESP is a very good album. Yet again, very different again as well. You were saying about Robin's wife being interested in spirituality and ghosts and phenomenons and things like that. Was this an influence on the album title as well as the genre, given it was called ESP? Yeah, yeah. Much to the resentment of the other two Bee Gees. But yes, he, Robin pushed that on him hard. I didn't even realise that. Now we're talking about it. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously they, they worked with different people. They worked with um, Barbara Streisand for a bit and then they worked with um, Diana Ross. Was that, all, was that all three brothers again or was it just Barry one? No, that was Barry. That was all Barry. All those projects with other singers was all Barry. Wow, even um, Dionne Warwick as well. Even Hartwell. Oh yeah, totally Barry. Dionne Warwick, Kenny Rogers was just Barry as a songwriting collaborator and producer. Wow. And what about Jimmy Ruffin? Was that, a, was that three of them or one of them? 
No, no, it's all it's all berry. Anytime you're outside the Bee Gees, it's berry. Wow, that's crazy. Because they obviously do it as a group effort again, don't they? They make it look like it's a it's all the yeah. brothers. Yeah. Going back to you win again the, the single. It was a very sort of serious single for them. It was very grown up. But it also had sort of, it's almost like connotations of sort of like innuendo as well. Well, you know, they love, I mean, the, the Bee Gees loved innuendo. Robin had like an eighth grade sense of humor. And, you know, how deep is your love and Fanny and, and all those songs. It's very, very Robin. He, he loved that stuff. <laughs> well, he was always drawing, like in the studios, he was always drawing pornographic drawings on the walls. <laughs> and he had this immense porno collection and, you know, that was just Robin's deal. Wow. I didn't know that either. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That all sort of stuff was done with a nod and a wink at the time, was it? It was deliberately put in there, was it? Yeah. So there's a new window in a Bee Gees song. It's always really purposeful, really purposeful and knowing. Was there an artist that, um, like Barry or the boys were going to work with in the 80s that was talked about but never came through? Did Was anyone they mentioned they wanted to work with? No, as far as I know. No, I mean, Barry really wanted Otis Redding to sing, you know, that song. But otherwise, no, they didn't. Barry pursued artists and artists came after Barry. And once Barry began to write number ones for other people, he was, he was highly sought after. But, you know, the Bee Gees always regarded themselves as their own planet. So it was not like them to go looking for collaborations. You move along to 89 and you've got the album One comes out with the track one on it. And then you've almost gone back to your sort of poppy roots again. The track one is very sort of poppy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a lovely move that they, they did that and got back to their sort of roots again. And that's a really interesting album as well. Well, I think it's really interesting that Barry's writing for other people seemed to bring him back exactly to what you said, to making a pop song. And it really does evoke the older Bee Gees very much. Yeah. And it has, just has a lovely sound to it, I think. It's a more of a glossy album. Like when you get to sort of um, ESP, like you win again, it's a very, I, I say the word chunky, if you know what I mean, because you've got like the stomps on you win yeah. again and stuff like that. Whereas yeah. this album was very slick and very smooth again. It's almost like they were going back to sort of, not disco flavor music, but the sort of production wise, it was back to that sort of slick sound again. Yes, it's very, very 80s sounding with that slickness. I mean, I mean, it's just wonderful that they got back on top again, I think. <laughs> I think it's... Well, who had their career? I mean, who had number ones and fell out and had number ones and fell out and then had Saturday Night Fever and then fell out and then came back again? I mean, that kind of relentlessness, nobody has that. In your eyes, how will the Bee Gees be remembered? Would it be just as a band or as a song? The thing about the Bee Gees is you can go anywhere in the world and pick somebody on the street and say, can you hum a Bee Gees song? Or what's your favorite Bee Gees song? And they will. Everyone knows the Bee Gees. And I think their legacy is going to center around Saturday Night Fever. But their popularity is so vast that they're just sort of like in the ether. You know, they're just in the air. Like, I think like no other band. Everybody knows a Bee Gees song. If you could pick the Bee Gees or Barry to write for someone, who would you have picked them to write for? Well, I would have picked them to write for Otis, you know, right off the jump. You know, um, Graham Parsons covered To Love Somebody, did an amazing job of it. You know, Lowell George from Little Feet, he was such a great singer. I love that. Okay, you know who I would have enjoyed? I would have enjoyed him writing a song for Tom Jones in Tom Jones' heyday. Because Tom Jones could really tear up a song in his heyday. And it, I would love to hear Barry have written for something for Tom Jones. That's absolutely true. That would be absolutely fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't it? I'd love to, to to have done a sort of skewed version where he writes a song for Pink Floyd. <laughs> well, that would been very, very that would have been really, really. You know, what's interesting, what's really interesting about that is 
you know, Barry wrote one song that's kind of a psychedelic freakout on one of their early records. And even his psychedelic freakout comes in at two minutes, 59. You know, he was a single songwriter. And so what would be so great about him writing for Pink Floyd is that it would be 259. He isn't <laughs> going to write an eight minute, 40 second song. <laughs> and it'd be nice to hear the Pink Floyd play a song that was 259. <laughs> <laughs> they can start. They just start. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's wonderful. Let's go back to your, your autobiography of the, of the Bee Gees. How long did it take to write the book? It took about two years because I, I interviewed so many people and Barry was really, really opposed to the book. And there were so many people I called who said, if I talk to you, Barry will never speak to me again. Wow. And that's why my main sources in the book are anonymous because there were like four significant people in the Bee Gees career who would talk to me. But um, Barry never talked to me, no matter how hard I tried. And so many people that work with him wouldn't talk to me. So it took a lot longer. And I had to do a lot of research in, in older journalistic sources, you know, like Trouser Press magazine, you know, it's no longer around and all these older rock and roll magazines to find out stuff about them. And there was a fan biography, like a thousand page fan biography that has all these amazing stories in it, but I couldn't use any of them because they were, none of them were sourced. You know, I couldn't prove that these stories were legitimate. So researching it was much more difficult than writing it. Right. I see. And how long did the writing process take? Like six months. But I, I pretty much researched, you know, as a full-time job for a year and a half. And then and then settled down and wrote it. Wow. Did you get any response from Barry after it came out? Did he write to your email and say... <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what Barry's response was. <laughs> Barry sicked all the Bee Gees hordes against my book on Amazon. No way. And if if you go on Amazon... I got like 55 star reviews and 500 one star reviews. And the difference is the five stars read it. And the one stars are Bee Gees fans who went after it. I mean, he, he got radio show hosts and critics and all these people that had been part of the Bee Gees universe to attack the book, which to me suggests that I, it's accurate. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was Barry's response was to try and crush it. I mean, that's, that's a real shame considering you just wanted an honest sort of, autobiography yeah. about what happened you know and also he never read the book so he presumed the book is a hatchet job but in fact all through the book i talk about i regard them as a truly great band and still an underrated band because they were goofy you know they were never rock and rollers i always say they spent their whole careers with their noses pressed up against the glass of rock and roll you know they always wanted to have that kind of credibility they never did but they put out such such great music and they're a fascinating story. And, and they came out of like less than nothing. You know, the Bee Gees, the brothers were singing in the gutters for nickels to support their families when they were like nine and 12 years old. And they pulled themselves up out of nothing. I mean, I admire them and I admire Barry as a songwriter, but he really didn't want the book to happen. Is that a, a personal thing or does he do that for any autobiography? Is it just the thing? Well, I'm the only person that ever attempted one. <laughs> so but, uh, Barry always, Barry wants to control everything and he wanted to control the BG story. And if you saw that documentary that came out, there's nothing of the true strife between them or the drug and alcohol issues or the jealousies. He didn't want any of that reported. He wants a very bland, you know, um, straight, just bland and squeaky clean 
And he, he didn't want the truth of the story told. But the truth, I don't think, is even all that terrible. It's just, it's a, it's a family story. It's a classic story of a family. And who could handle the success that they had? Tell me that. Who can handle that kind of success and not fall into drugs or alcohol or whatever? I just don't think it's possible. So if people want to find your book, David, where's the best place to get it? You know, I always push people to go to bookstores and order it, but it's on Amazon. It's easily gettable on Amazon. So yeah, if you want to get it, um, I'm going to put a link in the description to the show notes for people that want to get it just underneath this. You oh, can order thank it. you. No, that's no problem. You can order it just underneath this as well. Uh, David, it's been fantastic talking to you about the Bee Thanks for your time. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. On the next one, I'll speak to Chris Hughes, who was Merrick and Adamant's band and went on to produce Tears for Fears and co-wrote Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It's a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a great guy. Keep an eye out for that one and I'll see you on the next one. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Much love. Ta-da. This show is produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.